Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're beginning in chapter 12 of Revelation, where we read and interpret the prophecy given about the woman and the dragon. Who are they? Grab your Bibles and find out as we continue our journey in the Word. Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads, ten horns, seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God in his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. When the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and a half time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Boy, all this language, huh? What does all this mean? Well, let's take it apart. Look at verse one. Now, a great sign appeared in heaven, a great sign. John begins by telling us that in this moment, he saw a, a great sign that appeared in heaven. And, and depending on which Bible translation you're reading from, you, your Bible might use the word wonder instead of sign. I'd say a great wonder. And although that word can be used, the Greek word that John is, is using here, even though it can be interpreted as wonder, is really a word that's best interpreted as sign. There's actually a different and more accurate word in the Greek for wonder. That, that word is taros in the Greek, which isn't found in the book of Revelation. But the word John is using here is a Greek word that is used seven other times in the book of Revelation and is best defined as sign. So what's the big deal? 
Why am I pointing this out to you? You might wonder. Well, you know, although it's, it's not necessarily wrong for Bible translators to use the English word wonder instead of sign here in this verse, it, it is a word choice that doesn't best reflect what John is trying to communicate to us beginning in this section of our text. The word wonder tends to imply the, the appearance of something amazing, but the word sign implies a whole lot more than that. You see, while it can be used to indicate something being truly amazing, it more accurately reflects something being symbolically important. Do you see the differentiation in that? It is amazing, but it's also symbolically important. And that's how John is using it here. He's saying that what we're seeing taking place isn't just something amazing, but, but that what he's seeing and what he's about to describe to us is something that's symbolic of an important physical and spiritual truth. Now, I find it interesting that John feels compelled to, to communicate this to us in this way. What I mean is that, that it's interesting that John feels compelled to, to differentiate between the literal and the symbolic when it comes to the interpretation of this portion of Scripture. What it tells us is that there are portions of Scripture, there are portions in particular in the book of Revelation that are to be interpreted literally, but there are also portions that are to be interpreted symbolically in order to determine the meaning. And this is a portion of Scripture where we have to look at the symbolism to determine what the actual meaning is. Now, I point that out to you because here's where a lot of people get off track when it comes to their interpretation of the book of Revelation. There are those who approach the study of this book by forcing everything to fit a literal interpretation of the book. You know, everything to fit a literal interpretation as they're reading it. And, and, and in their minds, everything must be worked out and interpreted literally. And, and what, the problem with that is that such an inflexible view poses all sorts of interpretational problems in some sections of this book. But then there are those who, who go to the other extreme, and what they do is they take a purely symbolic approach to interpreting this book, and they rigidly apply symbolic meaning to everything in it. But this also poses lots of problems because it, it ends up with all sorts of weird interpretations that, 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 that don't fit what God is clearly trying to communicate to us in this, these scriptures. So which approach should we be taking? Well, my answer is both. Both. As as the text and as the context warrants, both. We need to take our cues from statements like this that we're coming on this morning from John that's, that he's making here that indicate that there's a change in the way we're to interpret this. We need to take our cue from this by, by making these simple little statement like this that he's making here, a statement that many people miss. John is making it clear that the things he's about to describe to us must be interpreted symbolically if we want to understand it. He'll be using language that symbolically speaks of very real things. Note, I didn't say he's going to be speaking of things that can be taken allegorically. You know what I mean by that? To just create some story around that. That's not what he's doing. These are real events that these symbolic pictures are pointing to. And now since John doesn't make a lot of references like this, it does tell us that the better part of the book of Revelation is meant to be interpreted literally, but there will be times when the symbolic and figurative interpretation is absolutely appropriate. It won't make any sense to interpret these sections in any other way, especially literally. One more important thing to note, when a passage in the Bible is intended to be interpreted figuratively or symbolically, there will always, and I, I, I emphasize that, there will always be 
ample information given to us, either in the immediate context or in the broader context of Scripture as a whole, to enable us to discern the full meaning. In other words, Scripture will always interpret Scripture. Scripture will always interpret Scripture. And as we study a passage like this, we need to look for the answers in Scripture. We don't just come up with our own idea about it. We need to look for where the balance is from other portions of Scripture that would define it for us, not just making up in our own as we go, which a lot of Bible teachers mistakenly do today. And as a result, they come up with all kinds of crazy ideas and associations with these things. So let's look at what John sees, and I think you'll, you'll see the sense of what I'm, I'm communicating to you here. He says, now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head, a garland of 12 stars. John begins first by telling us that he sees a woman, a woman. There are all sorts of interpretations that people have come up with as to who this woman is. Some suggest that she's a symbolic representation of the church of Jesus Christ. Ah. I understand that. We're the bride of Christ, right? So the bride, woman, well, I'm not a woman, but the context would be of a woman. So some say it's the the church. Others suggest that it's Mary, the mother of Jesus. The Church of Scientology even believes that this woman symbolically depicts Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of their movement. Yeah, I know. The, the list of, <laughs> yeah, I won't go there. The, the list of possible candidates, it just, you could find all kinds of stuff associated with this. But this woman's identity, I believe it's clearly given to us if we look in the scriptures themselves for the answers. First of all, there is another reference to a heavenly woman given to us in the New Testament scriptures. It's found in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 26, if you'd like to write that down. But in Galatians 4:26, it says this, but the Jerusalem above is free which is the mother of us all. Now, the word woman is not used, but the reference is clearly there. Mother, it's a woman. The Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. And in this passage, Paul is dealing with the old covenant and the new covenant. And he's trying to show the Galatian believers, many of whom have given themselves over to the practice of the Judaizers. You remember those people? They're the ones who said, yeah, Jesus is good, but you need to follow the law. And they're, they're, they're adding the law back into the mix, which is not what, what the scripture and the gospel teaches. But, but they're giving themselves over to this idea that, that, that there's more than just faith that's required for salvation, believing that even though they've placed their faith in Jesus, that they need to keep the law in order to be and remain saved. And that's such an idea. And Paul's trying to tell them such an idea does not line up with the gospel, which is founded upon faith in Christ alone. You know, it's sad, but it's true. There are a lot of people like this, even in the church today. You know, people who are giving themselves over to the idea that Jesus plus something is what they need in order to, to, to find salvation, in order to find justification, in order to find sanctification. But salvation and sanctification isn't found in Jesus plus anything we do or believe. It's found, it's, it's not found in keeping the law. It's not found through, through keeping rituals. It's not found through living a good life, as important as living a good life is. But it's found through faith in Christ alone, the one who saves us, the one who justifies us, and the one who sanctifies us. And I pray that you all know that truth and you're resting in it. You can't sit in this fellowship for very long without getting that message be made clear. Stop striving. Stop striving and rest in what's been done for you in the finished work of Christ. The baptism today is an awesome example of that. 
It's the one thing we stress to those that are going to walk into the water. You don't, you're not even being baptized in order to be saved. You're being baptized because you are saved. You're not being baptized to justify yourself with God, but you're being baptized because you've been justified. You're not going into the water to sanctify yourself. You're going into the water because Christ has already done that work to sanctify you in and of himself. It's all about faith in Christ alone. But there are people who get that confused. Here in this verse, Paul is, makes this, this point absolutely clear by contrasting this new Jerusalem with the old Jerusalem. The old Jerusalem reflects what? The old covenant, right? The old covenant, the meticulous keeping of the law, while the new, the new Jerusalem reflects the new covenant, reflecting not just the keeping of the law, but grace. It's about grace. While the old Jerusalem was established on earth, the new Jerusalem was established where? In heaven, right? Even before the foundation of the world, it tells us in scriptures. And, and this, this, this is a great contrast, isn't it? When you think about it, while we think it, it, it's, it's about the things we do in the physical that saves us, in reality, the issue of salvation rests with heaven itself. You know, I, as, as one author put it, he said, this contrast Paul draws between Christianity and legalism is the contrast between heaven and earth. Is your relationship with God a matter of heaven coming down to earth? Or is it like earth reaching up to heaven? Man tries to reach up to heaven to save himself through religion and through religious ideas and through works. But the gospel says Jesus came down because no matter how much we would try to do that, we could never reach up to heaven. Man tries to build the tower into the heavens. But God says that tower will never reach to the heavens. He came to do the work for you, for me, so we didn't have to strive at it. So let me just say to you, if, you, if you're trying to reach up to heaven by earthly means, stop it. <laughs> stop it. You're missing the point. You're missing the mark spiritually. True faith is not a matter of what you can do to reach heaven, but it's a matter of trusting in and resting in and relying on what heaven has done for you. This is faith that saves, and this is faith that keeps you. Not your earthly works, but heaven's work done on your behalf through Jesus Christ. I hope you understand it because there are a lot of people who simply do not. And I used to be one of those people, so I'm not talking about something I don't understand. It's absolutely true. But, but what does this all have to do with the woman we're dealing with here in Revelation 12? Just this. Even though Paul is using this as an illustration to drive home the point of grace over law, he also refers to a woman in this passage in Galatians, referring to her specifically as the mother of us all, or better translated, the mother of our faith. The mother of our faith. And we know from both the context and the language that Paul is using that he's not talking about a real woman, right? Here we go. Now we can see a symbolic statement being made and we can see by the context that he's not talking literally about some literal woman, but he's talking symbolically in this uh, about a spiritual concept in regard to our faith. He's specifically saying that Jerusalem, new and old, is the mother of us all, or our spiritual mother, the mother of our faith. The idea being that the old Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem, was always intended to be a reflection of the true heavenly Jerusalem that gives spiritual birth to us all. Now in a moment, we're going to see how this woman in Revelation 12 is also a mother. 
But, but, but the point to note is that this woman, the mother of Galatians 4 that Paul is referring to, is connected to Jerusalem, the physical Jerusalem. Now, keep this in mind. Let's jump over to Genesis chapter 37. If you'd like to write that down or go there, that's fine. Genesis chapter 37, beginning in verse 9. Genesis 37, beginning in verse 9. Now, in this particular passage, it's a passage that deals with the dream that Joseph had, not, not Jesus' father, earthly father, Joseph, but the Joseph of Genesis, of the Old Testament. And it's a dream he shared with his brothers, which I'm not sure he should have because it was pretty haughty as he shared it, but it's an important dream. Listen to what he says in Genesis chapter 37, beginning in verse 9. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Here in this passage, Joseph describes these symbolic things that, that he saw in his dream. Things that are similar to what we're now seeing. Do you see the similarity between what we're seeing here in Revelation 12.1 in regard to this woman, the sun, the moon, the stars? Now here in Genesis 37, these things symbolically depict Joseph's family and, and his family, his dad, knew that. And we see that because of his comment from his dad. The sun, it depicted his father. The moon, it depicted his mother. And the 11 stars depicted his brothers. All of them, he says, will eventually bow down to him in some manner. So what does this all have to do with what we're looking at here in Revelation 12? Just this. Just this. All of these symbolic references, Paul's reference to Jerusalem as the mother of us all, Joseph's reference to his family depicted through these symbolic things, they're all symbolic of things pertaining to to the nation of, say it, Israel. It's talking about Israel. And, and now we see these same symbolic things associated with this woman here in Revelation 12. And once again, they're things that are representative of the nation of Israel. In other words, this woman John is describing to us in Revelation 12 symbolically depicts Israel, the source from which the blessings of God have come to us all. Think about it. Our faith originates from Israel. Although she was imperfect in many ways, God used her to establish our faith and our worship of him. She's the source through which God brought the Holy Scriptures to us. In fact, Paul says that that is one of the blessings of the Jew, is that they have been given the oracles of God. She's the source through which we received our Bible. She's also the source through which the apostles came to us. And most importantly, she's the one that gave birth to Jesus Christ, our Messiah. The symbolism in this passage, it's incredibly clear. It's incredibly clear. The 12 stars surrounding this woman, well, they're the 12 tribes of Israel. They're the 12 tribes of Israel. They're the same stars in Joseph's dream, although he only saw 11 because he excluded himself, Right? Because he excluded himself. The sun, the moon, they represented Jacob and Rachel, the two people from the, who the Jews recognize as the patriarch and the matriarch of Israel. This woman isn't a symbolic depiction of the church. Nor is she a de depiction of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And she certainly isn't a picture of Marietti Baker. 
the founder of the Church of Scientology. She's Israel. She's Israel. In fact, throughout the Old Testament scriptures, Israel is referred to in the same context as a woman. Go read Isaiah 54, 1 through 6. Or read Jeremiah 3.20. Or read Ezekiel 16, 8 through 14. Or Hosea 2, 19 through 20. Or just pull out your concordance and look up woman in the Old Testament. And look how often the reference to a woman is symbolically depicting and speaking of the nation of Israel. And it's no different here in Revelation 12. It's symbolically depicting Israel. And now as we read on, we're going to find even more evidence of who this is. Look at verse 2. He goes on and he says this, Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Who is this child and why do I say that this strengthens the case for this woman being Israel? Jump ahead for a moment to verse 5. Look at verse 5. Tells us very clearly. Remember I told you scripture interprets scripture? Right here it is. It made it really easy. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Do you see who that is? There's no way to get around that. Who is it that Scripture tells us that will one day rule all nations with a, with a rod of iron? Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16 tells us. Revelation 19, verse 11. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's us. Praise the Lord. That's us. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Boom, scripture interprets scripture. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's not other than Jesus. That's who it's describing. That's who's going to rule with a rod of iron. And who is it that has been caught up to God and his throne, as this passage says? Well, Acts chapter 1, uh, verses 9 through 11 tells us. Acts 1, verses 9 through 11 says this. Now, when he, speaking of Jesus, had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. He was taken up. He was taken up, right? And then Hebrews 8.1 even makes it clearer. Hebrews 8.1 says this. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. You see, it's, it's also Jesus who's been caught up to God in his throne. He's the one who will rule with the rod of iron. He's also the one that's been caught up to God in his throne. And so, therefore, we can safely conclude that this child being referred to here in Revelation 12, who this woman gives birth to, is none other than Jesus Christ. Now, some people speculate that this is proof that the woman is really the church and not Israel, because Jesus is always seen in context of the church, Right? Yeah, he is always seen in context of the church. He works through the church. We are, we are his body in this world. But the church did not give birth to Jesus Christ. Israel did. 
The church didn't give birth to Jesus. Israel did. And then Jesus subsequently gave birth to who? The church, right? Get your order straight and you'll understand this. He came through Israel and we came through him. So this woman is clearly Israel and this child whom she's giving birth to is Jesus, the Messiah and the king of the whole world. In fact, in a number of references in the Old Testament, Israel is even referred to as a woman in travail. A woman in travail is a woman who's in the pains associated with childbirth. Isaiah 66 verses 7 and 9 tells us that. Micah chapter 4, verse 10 through Micah chapter 5, verse 3 gives us that depiction. And what travail was she in as she gave birth to Jesus? She was in travail as a result of her physical and spiritual condition. She was under the yoke of Roman oppression when Jesus came, under their occupation. And spiritually, she was in bad shape and as she was spiritually corrupted by false shepherds. At the time that Jesus was born, Israel was a nation in turmoil and, and a great deal of physical and spiritual pain as a result of everything. And as a result, she was ripe for a savior. She was ripe for a Messiah, a king who could deliver her from this thing. She was ready to give birth. And she did give birth to Jesus Christ. But he wasn't the baby that she quite had in mind, was he? Was he? He wasn't the hero coming to rescue them in a worldly sense, which at least what they were looking for, at least not at first, he didn't come that way. And for this reason, they rejected him. You know, it's still for that reason that a lot of people reject Jesus because he doesn't measure up to their expectation of what he should be. He isn't everything they expect him to be. He's not everything they want him to be. And they have this idea of what a Messiah should be, and he doesn't fit the bill. But here's the key. It isn't what we have in mind for a Messiah that matters most. It's what God intends for him to be that matters most. Amen? Amen. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.